collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. So welcome to another episode of Collective Power. Um, I'm really excited this morning to have two guests from the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project, Joanna and John. Welcome to the show this morning. Thank Thank you so much for having us. Yes. It's a real pleasure to have you as well. Um, You both work for the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project. Can you tell us a little bit what you do, like what the organization does and what your roles are? Uh, sure, I can start on this one yes. and then kick it to you, John. Uh, yes. Hey, Rita, so this is Joanna. I uh, am the co-founder and co-director of the organization with Lauren Fine. I founded it in 2014. Um, so we, in our roles as co-directors, do a bit of everything from service delivery, program management, to fundraising and operations, and really at the core, supporting a phenomenal team of advocates who carry out the day-to-day work to accomplish our mission in light of our values. I think having said that, I'll toss it to John. The only other thing I'll say is that our our purpose, the reason that we were formed, is to eliminate the practice of prosecuting young people in the adult criminal justice system in Philadelphia and longer term in Pennsylvania. We do that work in coalition and in deep partnership with other organizations locally and nationally. And since 2016, our, we expanded our, our mission and focus to also include mitigation, resentencing, and reentry support for former juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania having the distinction of having sentenced more children to life in prison without parole than any other place in the world. John. Yes. So Rita, my responsibility with the Youth Sentence and Reentry Project is I am the reentry coordinator. And so what that entails is that I help support our youth client partners who find themselves unfortunately involved in the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system to help support them in their transition back to the community as well as many of the men and women who were once sentenced as children to life without the possibility of parole. I do the same in terms of helping and support them uh, as they transition back to the community. You know, as you can imagine, you know, after spending a significant amount of time in prison, you know, the challenges are difficult for many of them. And so my responsibility is to help uh, to alleviate some of those difficult challenges that they might face. So I like to start the show always with a question, like, could you tell us a story about you before we dive into the beautiful things you do and the tough things you do and the challenges of everything you do? Could you tell us a story about you that has us both understand who you are as a person and why you're so passionate and committed to this work? 
You want me to start, Joanna? Hello? I'm still here. I was just looking at you and pointing. Uh, yes, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, my screen is short, so, and it wasn't focused on you. It's all Because Rita was the speaker, that's why. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, find myself in this field because of, unfortunately, you know, making poor decisions as a young person growing up that ultimately resulted in me uh, finding myself involved with the criminal justice system and being uh, sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And it wasn't until 2012 that the United States Supreme Court, think about, finally said that you can't treat children in a cruel and unusual fashion by giving them a, a life sentence, particularly, you know, this court said mandatory life sentence. And so I, I served 31 years of a life sentence. And so one of the things that was instrumental to me was the fact that I found myself in that situation in the first place. And so it, uh, I always was committed to the idea that I would be involved in some kind of way, particularly for those who had to face or will face uh, similar challenges as myself. And so that's why I find myself particularly in this area right now. Thanks, John. And, and what I'll share is that a, I do this work as a Black woman, as a biracial Black woman with significant light skin privilege who has known throughout my life since I was a child what that means in terms of interaction with the justice system in the United States, having seen friends caught up as I was growing up and then coming to Philadelphia almost 20 years ago and beginning to study all of the dynamics in the city that have led us to be one of the most carceral places on the planet where white supremacy is at work at every level and every stage of the system. I think more specifically what has led me to the work and what led me to co-founding YSRP was meeting incredible individuals like John while they were still behind bars um, serving what became unconstitutional sentences for decades for things that happened when they were children. And that was a life-changing experience, uh, sitting with John and with other friends and colleagues of ours at Greaterford at the time, and then sitting in rooms with loved ones, with family members, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, aunts and uncles, who shared with me, I had the incredible privilege of having them share with me the experiences they had decades ago of sitting in a courtroom, watching their child be sentenced on a mandatory basis to life in prison and having no opportunity to share their stories, to have any individualized consideration of what they had experienced with no focus on the individual young person as a full human and not just a set of charges. And holding those experiences alongside each other led me commit my career to this work. And it's been, like I said already, the privilege and, and also responsibility of a lifetime. I feel really lucky every day to get to learn and, and work alongside John and others in our community. So I kind of have a follow-up question for both of you, but wanting to go kind of one at a time. John, when was the moment that you knew that this kind of horrific experience you had had was going to become something bigger in your life? Like when was the moment that, you know, the tough moment and the tough life like shifted to, okay, I can do something with this. Uh, I would tell you probably early. So just imagine young people, just imagine yourself as a young person when you're trying to discover a sense of who you are, you're trying to develop an identity of who you are. And this is 
late teens, 17, 18 years old, and 19. And so at this particular time, I was incarcerated at 18 and 19 years old. And I remember encountering an older gentleman that befriended me and began to share books with me and have conversations with me. And so it got me reflecting on why me, why other people like me, particularly people of color, why do we find ourselves in this situation? And so I will tell you, you know, to be frankly honest, I was mad. I was upset that the fact that not taking my responsibility for what happened, it was that why did I find myself in this situation? And so that got me to really reflect on conditions that might have created circumstances that made me vulnerable to. And so it was very early. And so I began to like really get deep into studying and becoming a little bit more conscious of social dynamics that exist in our community. And so that's when I said to myself that I didn't want to see this happening to other young people to have to go through that because I knew some of the challenges that I had to navigate with, navigate through, but not feeling that I had someone to be able to support me through that process. And so it was relatively early. And I think the fact that it happened early, I think it helped really probably helped me develop that sense of resiliency throughout my uh, incarceration, because that was a goal all the way through that I wanted to be involved some kind of way with changing some of the, uh, the systems that are in place that make it easy for uh, young children, particularly children of color, to fail. Thank you, John. And I'm sure that, like, because you have this lived experience, you can contribute to their lives in a way that, like, those of us who don't have that direct experience can't. Right. So um, thank you for the work you do. I'm sure you have an incredible impact on the lives of a lot of youth that are going through some really tough stuff. My follow-up question for Joanna is, like, what is it in your, so you were talking about this becoming like a life commitment for you. Like you founded this organization, you guys do great work in Philly. You're also having the opportunity to, with the real life experiences of folks who have been through kind of to hell and back in a lifetime, right? And sometimes not even back. I'm curious, like, what had it be alive in your life? Like, what had it connect with your life to the point where you said, okay, this is my journey. This is my career. I'm going to invest my life in this. Yeah. And I don't mean to sound too hyperbolic. I, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years out of law school. I guess I'm still relatively early on in my career and, and lives and paths are circuitous. Uh, we often say at YSRP that nothing is linear. So I will hold that to be true for me too. But I talked a little bit about my identity, about my life experience before I moved to Philadelphia, the, the work and the learning that I've been able to do here for 20 years now. And that's it. Nothing had ever moved me so deeply as sitting inside of prisons and jails and juvenile detention centers and understanding what we are doing as a society, as a community. Um, it's being done in all of our names, and I think we have a responsibility to address it collectively with people who are directly impacted at the center of determining what the solutions and what the redress should be. So that's, it's what it comes down to. It's my value set. I try to carry out my own personal values and the work. We've, we've been able to do some really powerful work together as an organization and articulating our own organizational values. I think it's a, a privileged place to be in when the things that you hold most dear in your personal life align really closely to the values of the organization you work for. 
Um, and that's true for me here. And I'm not just saying that as a director, I, I mean that truly and personally, it gives my life a, a great amount of meaning. And it's, you know, the experiences and the stories and the proximity that I hope to share with my young daughter and as I'm building my family and moving forward in my own career. So what are the misperceptions do you, that you think people have most of the juvenile justice system? What are some of the misperceptions that you think most people have? Oh, there's so many. Uh, we could do this popcorn style. Do you want to start, John, and I'll add in? Yes, I would say one of those misperceptions is that the system works. I think it, there's a given, I think as a society, we take that, okay, if a person done such and such, and whoever, you know, when we say system, whoever controls that system and he's decided to put them in there, therefore that is appropriate and that it works, as opposed to really dealing with underlining conditions that might have precipitated in the first place. And so to me, that's one of, and I think Joanna probably talked a little bit more about, about many of those elements that exist within that system that don't work, that actually probably perpetuate many of the harms that children experience. And so to me, one of those misperceptions is that it works. Yeah, I think that's the most fundamental misperception, actually, um, in yeah. our work so much is, is showing how it doesn't work and how actually it's creating more harm in almost every sense of the word. So yeah, I think building on that as the overarching point here, one of the misperceptions connected to it working is that when you are prosecuting young people in the adult system, they are, quote, the worst of the worst, or, you know, a previous iteration is that they were super predators who deserve yeah. to be in adult jails and prisons that they, to borrow from the language of the late 80s and the 90s, they had done the adult crime, so they deserve to do the adult time. All of that has been debunked by the social science. We knew it to be false from the beginning. It's debunked at its core by, for us, by the people that we know. And it's just factually, factually in the cases that we see every day inaccurate. You know, we see young people as young as 15, a lot of cases being charged directly in the adult system uh, for cases that are ultimately dismissed, for cases that are quickly returned to the juvenile justice system, uh, for cases where uh, the use of a BB gun or a bed sheet or a rock is deemed the use of a deadly weapon. And that is just, it creates situations that perpetuate a narrative that we think is completely false. Could you guys break this down a little bit? Like, could you give us some examples? Sure. I think that I just alluded to one example that I can mention. The way that it works in Pennsylvania is that you are directly prosecuted in the adult criminal justice system by statutory definition. If you meet a certain charge with the use of a deadly weapon, like an aggravated assault or a robbery, then your charges are immediately filed in the adult system and the burden is on you as a young person to fight your way out to have your case decertified or returned to the juvenile justice system. A lot of this often hinges on what kind of weapon was used. And so we saw one case where a young person, a teenager under 18, was charged directly in the adult system and the deadly weapon, quote unquote, that was purported to be used was a bed sheet, not a gun, not a knife. And that young person was ultimately decertified or like I said, returned to the juvenile justice system. But it's just one of the many examples where we see the language of the statutes of the laws being twisted um, to try to keep young people in the adult system, which we know was not designed for them. 
and is, is not appropriate for children. Yeah. Really for anybody, but especially for children. Yeah, I would just expound on that. I think just a similar point in terms of, and this is how I found myself in the circumstances in which I found myself charging children who've been involved in homicides automatically as adults. And I think it reflected the problem with that is why Philadelphia had the most children sentenced to life without the possibility of parole was because once they charged children as adults, judges rarely was willing to decertify you back down to the juvenile facility, despite any uh, issues that you might have, which is what we're finding now is through mitigation, many of the issues that are being surfed in terms of what children are experiencing in their homes and in the environment, all these issues weren't addressed. And so, but the fact that we were automatically charging them as an adult and really wanting to decertify them, I think reflected in the number of children being sentenced to a life without the possibility of parole. And there was no question about that at all. No one questioned the justice in that process. For a listener who doesn't quite know the difference, like, could you tell us a little bit about the differences between being charged in a, as an adult and not being charged in a, as an adult and like how different those paths are and what the implications are? Absolutely. And, yeah, and I think you probably had to address that a little bit more, Joanne, because you're dealing with it more currently. And so, yeah. Yeah, I think we both have a lot to add on yeah. that. I'll get us started. There are two fundamentally different systems. The basis of the juvenile justice system is rehabilitation. It's based on a paternalistic notion of caring for the children who are involved. And in Pennsylvania, the age of jurisdiction for the juvenile justice system ends at 21. Whereas the adult system is focused on retribution, on being punitive. Rehabilitation could be one of the pillars that gets referenced, but it's not at the core of, the, of what the criminal justice system or the adult system is meant to create or apply. And, and there's also, you know, we could get into a whole conversation about deterrence, but I, I'm trying not to be too academic here um, as a non-academic. But those, I think, are the, the fundamental differences. Juvenile justice system is supposed to have this element of care, and we don't see that in the adult criminal justice system. We also often don't see that in the juvenile justice system. It's not meeting the promise that was intended when it was established, you know, over a, a century ago. Some of the things that we see, the differences when a young person either ends up in the adult system or the juvenile justice system, when you're convicted as an adult, the record stays with you. That is not true in the juvenile justice system. There are obviously lots of variations to what I just said, but at a very basic level, the implications of a lifelong adult felony conviction are very significant and different than being adjudicated in the juvenile justice system. There's no age limit cutoff if you're prosecuted and convicted in the adult criminal justice system as a teenager, that doesn't end at 21 like it does in the juvenile justice system. You could end up in the adult system, as John shared, for decades for the rest of your life, and that's the way the system is built. So there's a lot more that we can say, and even just the conditions of confinement, the differences, but between what people experience in a juvenile facility as compared to an adult jail or an adult prison, it's a whole probably hour-long show that we could have just on the differences between the two systems. And John, you should add in. Think about this notion. There was this uh, catchphrase, adult crime, adult time. And so therefore, when a child was charged as an adult, they were exempt from being a child any longer. That's it. 
And so this prevailed for, and for a long time. And, and again, it goes back to why the numbers reflected and it became much more easy, particularly as Joanna talked about in the 80s and the 90s, when there was conversation about the coming of these uh, violent young people and that they had no sense of consciousness. And so it became easy for prosecutors to charge children as adults. And many of them were willing to do that. So I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more about this fact that you've mentioned twice now, right, that Pennsylvania has the most youth charged for life without parole than any other state in the country. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So there was a report that came out in 2005 by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. And uh, this report wanted to study how many children were actually sentenced to life without parole throughout the world. And so what the report concluded was there were over 2,332 children sentenced in the United States versus 11 children around the world. And so that was the United States versus the world. And then when they started to break down the numbers even more, state by state, Pennsylvania had over 500 children sentenced to life without parole versus Louisiana. I'm going to just identify four states that had big numbers, Louisiana, Michigan, and Florida. They had between 200 and 300. But when you look even closer in the Pennsylvania numbers, there were over 300 children sentenced from Philadelphia alone, close to probably more than, if I'm correct, more than the other states alone. And so Philadelphia had sentenced a lot of children to life without the possibility of parole when you looked at the numbers. And even, even further, when you go in deeper into the numbers, in terms of who was getting these kind of sentences, you were seeing there were children of color who were actually getting these kind of sentences. Yeah, specifically Black children. Uh, yeah. I think it's worth noting there's a significant differential. Just I think, if I recall correctly, you're 10 times more likely to be sentenced to life without parole if you're a Black child than if you're a white child. So John hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think those are the reasons. I don't know, John, if you want to talk a little bit about second degree also and how that set Pennsylvania apart from some of the other states that have the highest numbers. Yeah, in terms of in general, well, second degree, I don't, and I'm assuming that you don't know that second degree, all it involves a felony homicide. And what that means is that oftentimes it involves a robbery, um, a burglary, some kind of uh, felony that might have precipitated the homicide taking place. So the homicide wasn't what uh, was intended. It was the, the felony that was intended. And as a result of the felony, you committed homicide. And so what they looked at is they saw the numbers of how many people who actually had second degree that was unintended homicides that was also receiving life sentence. And part of that was because of Pennsylvania law Pennsylvania law mandates mandatory sentence for first and second degree murder. And so, and this happened somewhere about 1974, I think when they changed the law, when they made felony homicide uh, a mandatory life sentence. And so you found a lot of people who, and this is key language from the US Supreme Court, where there was unforeseen or unintended a homicide to take place, but yet and still, you were still receiving life sentence in the state of Pennsylvania. And, and so, these were part of the numbers when you looked at these numbers of people, who are children, particularly children. And this is not just children, even though we focus on children, this is the state of Pennsylvania in general, that there are a lot of people who are serving life sentence and felony homicide 
has a, a large percentage of those people serving those homicides, I mean, life sentences. It's worth noting too, and then we'll see what other questions you have for us, Rita, it's just that we can go on on this for, for a while. But it's no longer, the US Supreme Court decisions that we've each been referencing made it so that life without parole can no longer mandatorily be imposed on children, but it is still on the books. And so when we talk about the largest numbers, we're talking about um, having had the largest number of young people who were sentenced on a mandatory basis to life in prison without parole when they were under the age of 18 before a series of US Supreme Court cases made that particular practice unconstitutional. There's still an ongoing fight to end the practice of making life without parole a possibility at all for children and looking at what we call de facto life sentences, which are being sentenced to decades and saying that it's not life when we know it really it is. So we'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, that can go on. <laughs> so thank you for the details. And I get that it's always intricate and complex and part of your expertise in this area is understanding those twists and turns and being able to support people through them. And it's kind of like every system is a windy road and a whole mesh of like whether it's roots or branches that sometimes makes it hard for the average person to kind of find our way through it, right? Although we see the effects of it. I'm curious I mean, one of the reasons I have this radio show is because I think, and listeners who listen regularly have heard this more than once, um, I think there's a tendency in our culture to talk about kind of what's screwed up with systems and then to feel so overwhelmed and so hopeless that we just have to change the topic. And so one of the things I'm committed to on this radio show is that we not come to a place of hopelessness, but actually shift to a place of where do we have power? Like, what is it that we can change? How is it that we can shift something? Where is it that we can build alliances? Where is it that we can build movements? So I'm curious, like, where do you see us having any collective power in this? Because I can could, I could feel like that heavy stomach feeling, right, coming up even just for me as a listener. I think we have collective power. I think we are in a particular time where discussions are beginning to take place and we're being forced to begin to have these conversations about underlining conditions that actually foster some of uh, the things that we've been seeing for a long time. And so to me, is having these frank conversations, that's when I'm thinking about the power, the power of being able to have these conversations and then I think demand change because for so long we have ignored many of these underlying conditions and just took for granted some of the things that's been happening. And this is why we're in the situations that we are in, you know? So to me is how are we having these frank conversations about many of these systems that are in place that actually breed some of the conditions that we see. And so to me, it begins with really having frank conversations about some of the underlying conditions that exist. Because for too long, I think we've been actually avoiding confronting these issues. Yeah, I mean, I so appreciate the question, Rita, and what you just shared, John. I and mean, we find ourselves right now in a moment of incredible collective power and opportunity. The devastating and tragic murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and 
the anti-Black state violence that we have experienced for centuries is leading us here um, and is, I think, catapulting the conversation that we've been in forward in a way that is really energizing and exciting. We are talking about abolition in ways that we didn't anticipate talking about for years. And the Black Lives Matter movement has led the way in getting us to this point and talking about defunding and abolishing the police, defunding and abolishing the systems of control that are rooted in white supremacy that have created the problems that John and I just spent <laughs> so much time describing. That's what's at the core of all of this. We call ourselves a racial justice organization for a reason because the things are inextricably linked. So when we talk about dismantling, defunding, abolishing these systems, we're also talking about the way that the juvenile justice system creates so much harm in individual young people's lives and the lives of the former juvenile lifers that we work with. And, you know, that gives me hope. That puts me in a hopeful place where we can continue leveraging this collective power that we see in the streets to drive for the change that we want, the change that needs to happen that is absolutely urgent right now. So how do you envision a world without like if you're on the side of the, I don't know if you're on the side of kind of decreasing police funding or actually of abolishing, but how do you envision a world in which that would actually work or a country in which that would actually work? I would just simply say this. I think let's, let's just begin the conversation. We ain't had the conversation. I think we avoided the conversation because we took for granted that police does the right thing and that they were beyond reproach and I think that's to begin the conversation, you know, do we need them the way they currently exist? That's right. Um, we need to be thinking bigger. We need to be bringing creative, big imaginations to the way that we address the, the challenges that people experience and not feeling like the first responder to every situation needs to be the police. The first responder to so many situations that we see in our work ought to be a social worker, ought to be a medical professional, ought to be a mental health professional um, with the access to resources that do not currently exist. We're talking about reallocating resources, funding services and resources that have been completely defunded and stripped of support for far too long. It's a process of reimagination that's only going to start when we have the conversation that John just described. Could you give an example of a youth you've worked with where there was a police intervention that led to a certain result and that the police didn't need to be involved at all? Well, I'm not I'm trying to think about the specific frame of your question. I mean, in our cases, because they are the more serious cases that they're direct file in the adult criminal justice system, police tend to be involved either immediately or in the investigation that leads to an arrest. I don't know that I would pinpoint one case in particular do you mean a case where the police were actively involved in the scenario? I'm not, maybe you can help me understand a little bit better. Um, yeah, I was just, maybe it doesn't apply to your cases. I was just thinking about like where some people are not taking the defund police movement seriously because they can't envision a world in which police didn't exist. Now, I'm not going to say that's me. It actually isn't. But I was just curious if, like, you could come up with a scenario example, and it's okay if it's, if yes. it's not the case for the work you're in, but a scenario example of what it actually was with police and intervention and what it could look like, just yeah. so we could wrap our heads around it. Because I think yeah. what a lot of people think of when they, they think of just fund police is fear 
and then, you know, it's all anarchy. And I don't think that's the world we're envisioning at all. Right. I would just simply add this, is that I think, as I said, there's a conversation that needs to be had. We need to approach the conversation where, because police haven't been held responsible for their behavior. And so if there's a threat of defunding them, perhaps this changes how they behave. And I think we could probably talk about tons of people who have experienced abuse by cops, uh, false testimony. I think we see these things coming out consistently now. People who spend decades in prison because uh, 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 what's our statements been taken from them illegally or falsifying information on them. This is all a part of the reason why defunding police is being questioned because of their behavior for a long time. And so if there's a threat and rather than just continuing to reward them for bad behavior, then, you know, we need to take another approach in terms of let's defund them and hold them more accountable. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I think, Rita, the, the reason that I'm struggling a little bit with the original frame of the question is that it's probably true in every single one of our cases. And so it's hard to pull out just one. The over-policing of the communities that our client partners live in, go to school in, has resulted in their arrests, not just to the criminal justice system, but before that in the juvenile justice system. Um, the over-reliance of police in schools, and especially the schools that our young client partners have gone to, has led to their entanglement in the system. It's so pervasive. It's not a one-off situation. It's completely embedded into the fabric of the lives that our client partners have been living that we know about all too well, that it's hard to sort of pull it apart, if that makes sense. How can people support your work? Have the conversations. We have a bunch of materials on our website, which is ysrp.org. We are always eager to engage in the conversation that we just had. We're really grateful for that. We are also a nonprofit that is fundraising all the time. So I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say that we have a donate button on our website. It's pretty easy to find. It's in yellow up at the top. Every amount really matters to us. It's how we are able to do the work and not feel obligated to systems of power and control um, in how we push our advocacy forward. So thank you for the question and John. And you can probably, if anyone go to our website, learn about the lives of individuals who've been impacted by the work that we do. They provide testimony about just having someone like YSRP. I often share the story about myself. When I come to prison in 1985, I had an attorney that simply just had me plead guilty. Uh, rather than checking out my background and providing this for the court to consider. And so I wish I had someone like YSRP to advocate on my behalf. And so I am so grateful that YSRP exists and I am a part of that because I think we get the opportunity to make a difference in many people's lives now today that don't have to go through similar things that I went through. And all of those individuals that I talked about that uh, come through Philadelphia that didn't probably didn't have the same advocacy that is being given today with organizations like YSRP. And what you said is really important because that being led to pleading guilty is a big part, right, of our population of people who are incarcerated, 
sorry, like people being actually led to plead guilty. Like that's a huge, uh, there's so much, you talked about like things we could do a whole show on. That's definitely like one of those things we could do a whole show on. And we really wanted to show that, that those connections between the juvenile justice and the criminal justice system, because there is all this conversation about defunding police and overcoming systemic racism in the criminal justice system. Because sometimes we fail to look at the fact that it's, for some of us, not like not for the work you guys do, like your work is to look at the connections between the juvenile justice and the criminal justice system every day, right? So you're not the ones with this blind spot. But a lot of people who are in the work of shifting systems and making the world so-called a better place tend to forget how all the systems are connected. So if we're going to have a conversation about defunding police, and we'd have to have a conversation about defunding juvenile justice, right? Like we have to have a conversation about defunding prisons and, and these are all connected and it's just like what's possible for our world if we actually envision like a world in which these systems don't really have to exist because things are handled in a different way. That's right. So any last thoughts before we close? I'll just say that we can change this together. Uh, We don't have to live in a city, uh, in a state, or in a country where children are sleeping tonight in an adult jail cell. We don't have to live in a system or in a country that charges parents for the cost of their children's incarceration in the juvenile justice system. There are so many changes that we can make, and to the whole premise of your show, Rita, we can do that collectively. So we invite folks who are listening to join us in this work, to join us in this movement. We're eager to really make some progress in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania. Okay, and I would simply say, uh, we as a society, I think, need to not be so quick in throwing away children or uh, not being there to support them. Because one of the things that we're learning is that children are resilient and we need to support them through those formative years when they're trying to discover their place in this world. You know, too often when they make poor decisions, we are quick to dump them as opposed to being supportive of them. I think this is something that we need to look at as a society in terms of how are we treating children and versus how are we supporting them through those difficult moments. Well said, John. And I'm sorry that we as a society hadn't figured it out enough for that to not happen to you. And thank you for the work that you do every day and the work that it's taking you to get to this far to be able to do that work with other youth. Joanna, thank you for your commitment to this work and the powerful organization that you lead and everything that you provide for our youth. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to to share about what we're doing and for your solidarity and for framing the conversation so thoughtfully. Yes, I thank you as well. Yeah, it's been great to have you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. 
And until next week, drop the mic. 